So here we are. We have Jesus traveling with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea and Philippi. Now this is a region to the north of kind of the land. It's the furthest north that Jesus and his disciples kind of travel, the kind of furthest off that they go, a little bit on a retreat. And previously, right before this, Jesus heals a blind man. But it didn't quite go as it expected. They came to Bethsaida. Some of the people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him to the village. And he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him. He asked him, can you see anything? But the man looked up and said, I can see people. Trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on the eyes again and looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even go into the village. This is Jesus' 15th miracle in the book of Mark, really racking him up. He's feeded 5,000 and 4,000. He's walked on water. He has healed people. And all of them basically gone without a hitch. But here, we see the man get healed, but everything looks like trees. Then he gets healed again, and Jesus fixes everything, because Jesus can fix things, like I said with our little uh, um, facing Jesus moment. And some commentaries say that this was on purpose. That Jesus was trying to show his followers that God doesn't always fix things exactly the way we want them. He doesn't even do everything exactly when we want them to be done. And like the boat, very similar to the way the boat uh, happened last time when Paul preached a couple weeks ago about how Jesus walked out and the disciples fought against the waves and then Jesus came and helped them out. Right? Sometimes God doesn't, isn't with us always in every moment that we need. Joan, how long was it that you sat empty before you felt the love of God? A couple hours, right? Seven hours. Seven hours right? She sat by herself wondering what was happening to her brother. Sorry, I didn't tell you I was going to pull you into this. But. <laughs> but then there are other commentaries who say that this is a bit of a, a Jesus' humanness. His humanity. That because Jesus is fully divine, he can heal, but because he's fully human, sometimes it doesn't work out quite as right in the way he wants it to. And I know that will rub some people the wrong way, and I'm not really 100% sure how I feel about it. Um, but it's important for us to acknowledge that God is fully human and fully God, that Jesus is fully human and fully God. Though Jesus has the same tendencies we have, the same desires we have, he is without sin. And honestly, that is a much more refreshing narrative than just that Jesus is God, and of course God doesn't sin. That's easy. We're not God. But God, Jesus is fully like us. And so I don't want us to get too upset about that kind of interpretation, because uh, I think it is important. But whatever the reason for this little snafu... I'm sure the crowd saw it as a mistake. And I'm sure that they began to question Jesus. Who is this preacher who says he can heal, but he doesn't do it that great? I mean, that guy saw trees. What is that all about? 
And so they headed off north, the furthest north, and they had to do a little bit of market research. Right? So back to our, our Mark scripture here. Jesus goes with the disciples, and on the way he asks them, Who do you say that I am? And they have all these answers. Or who do the people say that I am? They have all these answers. Then he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers correctly, who at this point, I don't know if you guys are keeping score. This is one on the Peter gets it right side. There's a lot of Peter gets it wrong side too. But uh, he got it right this time. He says, you're the Messiah. But only, maybe it's got a little asterisk to it. Because Jesus says, don't go and tell anyone that. So uh, poor, poor Peter, he's always getting a little messed up there. So we asked who the people say he is, and they asked the disciples who he says he is, and this is an important two-part question. What do people say outside of these walls, here, outside of my voice, they're listening on the internet, um, our, all our sermons go up on, uh, on our website, if you guys miss any, you can check them out, um, it's pretty fancy. Um, that's an important question, who do people say outside of here? I can count countless studies about how the decline of religion in our country or the decline of the significance of Sunday as a religious day. Um, we talk about it up in Paul's office every Thursday. Every Thursday. No one's coming to church anymore. Why is that? Right? Or there's the rise of the so-called nuns. We hear about that a lot. And we can sit here and say how terrible the world is or how hard it is to do ministry. Right? And we, we'll have that thing and no one understands us. And then we'll ask each other the second question, but who do you say that Jesus is? Right? And this is usually how this, this scripture is taught. Who do they say and then who do you say? Right? And I'm sure if I went up to each one of you and said, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? I will get some real genuine answers about the save, servanthood of Jesus and the savior, saving grace of Jesus. I'll get a lot of answers where people just tell me what they want to hear. Or what they think I want to hear. Right? But these questions need to be asked together. Jesus asks them together. He asks the first one. Who do they say I am? Who do I say I am? And they are linked. So we must link them too. So I'm going to ask him again. But before I do that, I want to share one more thing. Jesus was asking the disciples about the people who faced Jesus. Right? What did they say? Those who just saw him, what did they say of Jesus? Now, we don't directly face Jesus. Jesus isn't here. I mean, I wish he would. I got a whole lot of questions. This is very difficult for me. Um, but he's not. So, in uh, 2 Corinthians right, uh, 5, um, 19-21, this is one of my favorite verses. Um, we say at the end of our uh, confession. Um, but it, um, at the end, he says, So, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us, right? Because Jesus isn't here, Jesus is asking for all of us to be his ambassadors. So, the question that I want to take from the scripture this morning and ask all of you is this. Let's see if we can get it up there. Ay, ay, ay. Technology. I thought I had this really fun stuff. Okay, there we go. What do people say about me and my followers? And what do my followers say about me? Right? This is Jesus asking all of us here. It's a public relations question. Now, 
I just read this great blog post by this guy named James Wellman. Now, James Wellman, I've got to read this because it's very long. He's the professor and chair of comparative religion program at the Jackson School of International Studies, the University of Washington. He must have very big business cards. <laughs> and he was writing this blog post about the Pacific Northwest where he lives, Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia uh, in Canada. Um, and he likes to call it Cascadia, which is a much nicer term for it. Uh, and he talked about this new study that had found 60% of the area's residents are not religiously affiliated. There's about 10% that are Muslim and Jewish, 10% Catholic, 10% uh, um, kind of uh, conservative, um, evangelical, and about 10% mainline. That's kind of the, the other 40%. But 60% are unchurched folks. And it often leads people to re- refer to the area as a divine va- vacuum. It sounds a little bit like our northeastern context, right? We've said that before. Perhaps we have too mar- narrowly limited faith to people who believe and belong in the same manner as the tradition of Western Protestantism. The questions people are asking are the wrong ones, he says. Perhaps folks should look at that area maybe we should ours, not as a spiritual nun zone, but as a region of spiritual abundance. So what do we have, not what we didn't have? Now, in Cascadia, there's an abundance of wonder, he says, awesome possibility that it will simply take one's breath away. So here's a picture of Vancouver, that's what I was trying to find. That's Vancouver. Um, that's a pretty nice looking city with a beautiful skyline behind it. Certainly a picture of God's beauty. So he concludes this article after showing all of this. Yes, this is awesome beauty that is God created, God formed, the beauty of a son who is Christ our friend and, who, and his advocate, the spirit who comes alongside And this one invites us to know the source of this beauty, to name that source, Christ in Cascadia, Christ for Cascadia, Christ through Cascadia. And that is it. Instead of trying to finagle a conversation to one we want, right? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you want to have this relationship with this person that you can't see? We need to start... By seeing what people see, right? So people in Cascadia or the Pacific Northwest see that and they think it's beautiful. And it's very right for people to say, for Christians to say, well, yeah, it's beautiful. God made it. Of course it is. Duh. Since all things come from God, we just need to name its source and the light of God can be revealed. As some of you know, on Tuesday night, Palisades Presbytery in in New Jersey... Um, became the final vote um, to affirm and uh, ratify uh, Amendment 14F of our uh, Constitution of the Presbyterian Church, um, of our Book of Order. So what that means, for those who aren't uh, Presbyterian polity geeks like myself, is that starting June 21st, our Book of Order, our rule book, um, the third part of our Constitution, uh, will say that marriage involves a unique commitment between two people. And this allows for a more inclusive interpretation of marriage that will allow teaching elders, pastors, to marry couples of the same gender. 
Now, I have always been in favor of freedom of the pulpit. It's an essential tenet of our Reformed tradition. That pastors are able to preach what they feel called to preach, to marry who they feel called to marry, to baptize who they feel called to baptize. I've never thought that it should be this big government issue. I, always, I argued it on the floor of Presbytery when I was a senior in high school many years ago, and I continue to think it's a great thing. So I was pretty excited that this took it from the big church to the local church, and that's what it does. So I, I tweeted out because I was following on Twitter in the session meeting. I'm sure those who were at the session meeting saw me on my phone the whole time because I was following Twitter, trying to see how this vote went. Um, and so I uh, tweeted out, um, looks like 14F passed in New Jersey at the Palisades Presbytery. PCUSA passes marriage equality, hashtag equality. That was it. Very simple tweet. And then I got my first anonymous Twitter troll. And someone who spends way too much time on social media, I was a little bit excited. Right? You've made it when people start bugging you on Twitter. I don't know what I've made, but I've made it. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, to little surprise, this person was one of Christ's ambassadors, quote-unquote. A Christian decided to bug me on Twitter. That was my first Twitter troll, was a Christian. I can't say I'm super surprised, but it was. They said, uh, very simply, may God have mercy on you all. Very simple. Um, you know, we're keeping it simple. 144 characters, not too crazy. So I read it, and I was a little upset. Because what did that person say Jesus' followers were, Jesus was, or his followers were, right? For being ambassadors for Christ. There it is. All right, I got it up there. If I were to read that, or what I did read of that, is that it was, the, the comment itself was this kind of condescending, judgy internet troll. So if I didn't have an understanding for the kind of Christian culture, of that kind of Christian culture, one that is judgy and legalistic and condescending, one that can sound a little bit like the Pharisees, There's, we've all run into those people before, and, have, and I didn't have a love for Jesus and his people and his church, I certainly do. That's why I serve it. It would be easy for me to see or to gleam from that that because that face of Jesus was like that, that Jesus is a condescending internet judgy troll. But I know better. Don't worry. Now, I tell that story not to bring up marriage equality. We can talk about that later, what that bill means and all that stuff. But to illustrate that what we say to people about Jesus matters. It is no wonder that there is a rise of the nuns or the spiritual but not religious. For the last 50 or 60 years, Christians have been perceived as pro-war, pro-greed, racist, anti-poor, anti-woman, anti-gay, anti-foreigner, anti-anyone not like us, and super exclusionary. This is the perception. It's what they outside the walls say about us. And when Jesus was anything but that, This is what has been preached from fundamentalist so-called evangelical pulpits. And at the same time, our liberal mainline pulpits have been preaching this fuzzy, let's just all hug everybody stuff. Without naming the source of why we all want to get along and hug each other. That's Jesus, right? We don't want to just sing kumbaya to sing kumbaya. We sing kumbaya because we want God to come by here. So now what? Well, I'm excited 
be part of a growing contingent of Jesus-focused, social justice-focused, Bible-based evangelicals, people who want to share the good news, not the bad news, not the, but the good news of God's love, who have faithfully served Christ, people like Shane Claiborne and Donald Miller, people like Mihi Kim Court, who you guys should look up, she's a great writer, Presbyterian. These are people who know that what they say about Jesus matters and how they say it matters. So, back to our scripture. At the end of it, he tells them, after Peter answers correctly, you are the Messiah. He says, go out, don't tell anyone about this. Right? We don't need to tell people about this. We need to show it. Later on in that chapter, he calls the crowd forward. He says, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny that themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their lives for my sake, for the sake of the gospel or the good news, will save it. We must follow Jesus and do what Jesus did. We need to not just tell people that Jesus is the Savior, we need to show people that Jesus is the Savior. In Mark 12, it's uh, Mark's version of uh, the great commandment. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Right? We often try to find other commandments that are great, right? The Great Commission, it doesn't actually say that in Matthew. It's a commission. He tells his disciples, go and make this, his, his disciples, go and make more disciples. Important, but the greatest one is this. Love. Love your neighbor. If we want to follow Jesus just as Jesus commands us to do, we must love. There is no other greater way to follow Christ. And it is hard to love people when you are hurling internet insults at them or protesting their events or making assumptions about who they are or making the entry into our community pretty difficult. Now, I don't know if you guys knew this. I always think this is kind of fun, um, but also not great, that everything in this room has a different name than what it should be called, than what it's normally called, right? You guys aren't sitting on benches or in seats. These are the pews, right? This isn't a stage. It's the chancel. That's not a podium. That's the pulpit. We got a narthex. I don't... Right? This is actually this is technically called the nave right, of the sanctuary, the three parts. We have different names for things in our community. We use different Christian cliches like being born again or opening our hearts to Jesus. Right? I, oh, I've heard that said to me many times when I was in college. They come and, have you opened your heart to Jesus? I said, yes, I did. I'm an elder in the church. Move on. <laughs> no, I, I was busy. I was studying for finals or something. I don't know. <laughs> right? Or we start calling people sinners as if we know what sin really is. And please, if any of you guys got that definition figured out, we spent half an hour on a Thursday with Paul. We had the confessions out. We st- I still don't think I know it 100% what sin is, right? It's that movement away from God. It's where we fall short of God's plan. So practically... When I watch football on Sunday, am I sinning? I don't know. 
Let's have a conversation about that later. Right? We use this word like we know what we're talking about. That's my point. We have... But what does all of this accomplish? Having these terms, having these names for things. I contend that is a way for us to show that we know the language of being part of this community and that those people don't. And they're not included. That's what I contend sometimes this language is. Again, what we say matters. I had a shirt on yesterday. Uh, It's my favorite shirt. It's a new one. Um, It says, you may have heard this saying, love the sinner, hate the sin. Well, my shirt, it says that on there, and then everything but love is crossed out. And I love it. I saw it on the internet. I said, it was right before Christmas. I said, Megan, you have to get this for me. I'm so excited about it. I wear it um, when I go out because it's one of those great cliches that I think lets us off the hook of doing what Jesus asked us to do. When we hate the sin but love the sinner, right? That's not what Jesus, Jesus is just telling us to love. That's it, love. There's nothing more about that. So you have to love that person as a sinner, right? Just as I love each and every one of you as a whole bunch of sinners, myself included, right? We need to love, not have cliches that let us off the hook. Also, ones that have become so ingrained in conservative Christian culture that those outside the walls get real upset about, right? What we say matters. If we truly want to invite anyone, everyone into the kingdom of just as Christ calls us, we need to meet people where they are and show them love in their terms. Frederick Buechner, who's this great Presbyterian theologian, says, if we are to love our neighbors before doing anything else, we must see our neighbors with our imagination as well with our eyes. It is like, as, that is to say, like artists, we must not see just their faces, but the life beyond and within their faces. Here it is, love that is the frame we see them in. That is to say, loving our neighbors as Christ did, as Christ calls us to do, means really getting to know each and every person, who they are. We often put people into boxes or categories that can be one-dimensional. And I understand it's human nature. Paul warns us about this, saying that there is no Jew... No longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male or female. For all are one in Christ. It's from Galatians 3.28. And those categories go beyond those of Paul's day. Those were the kind of main ones he was dealing with. If you read there, he talks about who's in and who's out, right? Jews or Greeks. And he's saying, no, we're all one in Christ. Getting to know people one-on-one Treating them as equals is what Beekner is telling us to do. This is what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to face each and every person. So, as we leave this place and talk to others about the weather or March Madness or the woes of the world or how cute our kid is. Have you seen Charlotte? I'm serious. Uh, Or the beauty of a sunset or how good or bad of a day we are having. Let us name that source, that all things are from God, and so that Jesus is what is filling us up with our hopes and our dreams. And as we are naming that source, being ambassadors for Christ, let us do it in, ingenu- do it in genuine love. Not in a condescending, judgy love, because honestly, that's not actually love. But in a true compassion to our neighbors. We don't need to change people's minds 
That's not real love. We need to change people's hearts. We do that by stepping outside of our comfort zones, getting to know people that don't want to know, that we don't want to know, and showing them agape love, right? Unconditional love. Youth group, you guys know about that, right? We've talked about it. Unconditional love. That means it doesn't matter what kind of sins they've created. It doesn't mean what kind of terms they know or if they even know where to park on a Sunday, right? We need to love them anyway. Let me leave you with this um, one last quote from that great Presbyterian theologian of my childhood, Mr. Rogers. Love is in a state of perfect caring. It is an active noun like struggle. To love someone is to strive to accept that person exactly the way he or she is right here and right now. So, friends... Go from this place accepting every person we meet for who they are, a child of God. Seeing each person deeply as a child of God. Love everyone we meet with language of compassion and inclusion and love. Friends, be ambassadors for Christ. Show, don't tell, the love of your, that your Savior has for everyone you meet. Let us pray. Gracious loving God, we thank you for this day, for all that you've done for us, for filling our hearts with your spirit. Lord, fill us up as we go from this place, showing each and every person your unconditional love and compassion and grace. Give us the courage to reach out to those that we don't want to reach out to, to hug those that need hugs. Lord, be with us. Amen.